0: Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Wenton, California. I want you to turn to Philippians chapter 2. And while you're turning there, I enjoy worship. Sometimes in the song service. I choose not to sing because I want to hear the voices of God's people as they lift up praise to the Lord. It's a wonderful thing to hear the saints sing unto the Lord. And I want to say thank you to this group of young people over here, these children. Not a Sunday goes by that my heart is not blessed in listening to them sing the songs of faith. Uh, It it just thrills my soul. I mean, the adults sing okay too, but (laughs) the kids, there's just something about little children lifting up their voices to the Lord, praising the Lord in song that just washes over me with joy. I love it. Thank you, children. Thank you so much for participating in the worship service with us. Why do we believe that Jesus is the only way of salvation? Why do we believe that? Because Jesus said so? In John 14, he tells his disciples, Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there you may be also. Thomas. Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we possibly know the way? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. Do we believe that Jesus is the only way of salvation because he said so? In his conversation with Nicodemus, John chapter 3, He told Nicodemus that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. Do we believe that Jesus is the only means of salvation because He said so? There is, of course... The opinions of many, many, many people, since we live in a pluralistic, pluralistic, religious, religiously pluralistic society, I'll get that right when I attempt it a couple of times, a religiously pluralistic society where depending upon which religious group you talk about, they have their own quote-unquote system of salvation. They have their own way to eternal life. But not just here in these United States, in countries across the sea. You have those who say you need to believe in Muhammad, those who say you need to believe in Vishnu, those who say you need to believe in Buddha, those who say you need to believe in this, that, or the other. And there are are a number of people, a great number of people who believe. You don't need to necessarily believe in a person to be saved. You just need to believe in yourself. Be a good person. Be a morally upstanding person. Be an ethical person. Be an individual who crosses all the T's and dots all the I's. Pay your taxes. Be a good citizen. Be kind to your neighbor. Pet your dog every now and again. Don't abuse your spouse. And if you have to have a cat, leave him alone. All you have to do is just be a good person... And God will look with favor upon you. He will, as you stand before Him, uh, put your life on a balance, on a scale. And if the good things outweigh the bad things, then you're in scot-free. So why do we believe in Jesus as the sole source, the only way... To eternal life. In Philippians chapter 2, stand in honor of God's word. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him, given to him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the father this is the word of god we pray his blessing upon the reading of the word please be seated when the son of god became the son of man when the son of god became the son of man he chose it was a conscious choice he chose not to fully exercise or to express or to take advantage of certain rights and privileges and prerogatives that he possessed when he was in heaven. Let me say that again so that we understand. When the Son of God, when Christ became the Son of Man, Jesus, he chose not to fully express or take advantage of certain rights privileges, or prerogatives that he possessed in heaven. And in doing so, he did not, he did not forfeit any aspect of his deity. He did not make himself nothing, as the New International Version translates it. He did not give up everything as the Contemporary English Version and the English Revised Version translate it. He did not give up all he had, as the Good News Bible translates it. He did not pour himself out in emptiness, as the International Standard Version translates it. For him to do any one of these would have canceled out his deity. He no longer would have been son of God. But instead, Christ chose to humble himself. That's what the apostle wrote in verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. He humbled himself. The word humble simply means to take a lower position or rank, a lower estate. It doesn't mean that you're any less a person for who you are or for what you are. It simply means that you willingly choose to lower yourself in status, in position, in rank. And this speaks of the attitude of Christ as He left the courts of glory and clothed Himself in human flesh. His attitude, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, the attitude of humility. It wasn't a desire of Christ to experience humiliation by God or by man, but it was a willingness on his part to lower himself, again, in position or in rank, by becoming a slave, a bond servant, is the way it's translated into English, but it really means a slave of God and a servant to mankind. Now in Hebrews chapter 2, you don't need to turn there, but in Hebrews chapter 2, the apostle puts it this way, in verse 6 and verse 7, quoting the Old Testament, he writes, "'What is man that you are mindful of him?' Speaking to God, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the Son of Man, speaking of Christ." That you take care of him. You have made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and with honor. You set him over the works of your hands. He's been made a little lower in rank, in position, than the angels. Now, some will say he's speaking about mankind being lower than the angels, but he uses the title Son of Man which is almost always a reference to the Messiah. So this took nothing away from his deity, but it added to him humanity. It added to him humanity. And we'll talk about this hypostatic union at another time. But what we need to understand is that Jesus Christ is the only unique person that has ever lived that has had two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. And we'll get into that at another time. He did not empty himself of his deity in order to embrace humanity. He remained God, but he took upon the form of man. The essence, the character, the nature, and the attributes of humanity. And the apostle states that clearly here in Philippians 2. He took on the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself. He humbled himself. Now, I want to do some word study with you here briefly to help us understand what all of that means. How does that work, or how did it work in Christ? And then I want to conclude with three statements as to why it is imperative that people understand. That Jesus Christ is God's only provision for human salvation. That Jesus Christ is God's only way for a person to be forgiven of sin, for the judgment of God for sin to be removed, and for an individual to have eternal life in God's kingdom. I want you to note, first of all, that Christ existed in the form of God. That has been stated in verse 7. But made himself of no reputation... Well, excuse me, let's go back up to verse 6. Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. He existed in the form of God. And we explained what the word form meant last time. It meant as the Son of God... He shared in the same essence, the same nature, the same character, and the same attributes as God the Father and as God the Holy Spirit. He was not less than God the Father. He was not greater than the Holy Spirit. He was equal with them because He was of the same essence, character, nature, and attributes as they in heaven. So, he existed in the form of God. But notice, he took upon himself the form of a servant. It's the same word, morphe. It's the same word. It, it represents or it, it is defined as to have the same essence, character, nature, attributes as something else. And so being in the form of God, everything that God is, Jesus Christ Became human. All that a human is, he became. In other words, Christ became what he had never been before. And that's what the word, and we'll get to it in just a minute, but that's what the word became or become really signifies. It means that at one point in time, this individual or that incident or issue or whatever took place he became a bond servant he'd become what he had never been before a full human being son of god christ became son of man Jesus and again it's expressed in Four different ways here. He took the form of a bondservant. He came in the likeness of men. He was found in appearance as a man. And he humbled himself. Now again, the word morphe. It's the same as in chapter 2, verse 6. Being in the form of God, possessing the same essence, character, nature, attributes as God. But he became the form of... A slave, a bond servant. He took upon himself the essence, character, nature, and attributes of a slave. In other words, in his incarnation, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, became the Son of Man. Not a king, but a slave. Not an exalted VIP, but a nobody. Not a priest from Jerusalem but a man from Nazareth, of which Nathanael said, can anything good come from Nazareth? Not a rich man from a rich family, but a poor carpenter and the poor son of a carpenter. He who was the exalted son of God among the angels and the saints in heaven, Became the humble Son of Man among men. We need to think about that. We need to think about the humbleness of Christ when he became human. Now, note the word coming. That made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. It means to become. It means to be. It does not mean to exist without beginning, as ain in the Greek means. It's ginomai. Ginomai. It means at a certain point in time, this happened. He became human. He wasn't always human in eternity past, before the incarnation. He was always God, but He became human. He became the likeness, the apostle says, in the likeness of men. The word likeness to me means to be real. It means to be something else than what you are likeness means to be like something else but it doesn't mean that it is it is not unlike it in certain aspects it means to be the real deal coming in the likeness of men stresses the fact that when christ became the son of man the babe born in bethlehem the child of mary he became a real Human being. Not a phantom, not a ghost, not a clone, not someone that looked like a human being, but he became a real human being. So you put these two together, they mean that Christ really became something that he wasn't before. And again, he wasn't made a phantom, he wasn't made a clone, he wasn't made a representation of a human being, but he became a human in every respect. Now in the next verse taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man. You have the word being. It's the same Greek word as the word coming. They're translated differently in English. Why? I don't know. But they're translated differently. But it's the same Greek word. "ginomai." It means to become. It means the same thing as coming in verse 7. But notice... He became in appearance as a man. And the word appearance simply means appearance. He was indeed a human being in every respect, and he looked like a human being in every respect. Now, why would the apostle Paul go to these lengths To express the humanity of Christ. Well, understand that in those days, and there are today, if you watch movies and so on and so forth, there are those fantasies, there are those ideas and men that the Romans and the Greeks in ancient days and even today, that when when a, a, a being from another world comes into our world, they don't look like us. They may try to act like us, they may try to talk like us, but they certainly don't look like us. And so you have the pantheon of the Roman gods, you have the pantheon of the Greek gods, you've got Zeus and Athene and Mercury and all of these other gods that exist in wherever it is that they exist, but when they come in human form as a demigod or something of that nature, when they cohabit with a female or with a male and they have a child, and that child is a demigod, they may look like a human being but not act like a human being. Or they may act like a god and look like something weird. Paul goes to great lengths to tell us, to show us, To emphasize the fact when Christ became human he was in every aspect a human and his appearance was that of a human he didn't have three legs and four eyes and the nose over here on the side of his head he looked in every aspect as a human being looks bless you again now, let me put this together. Having defined these terms, let's, let's just grasp what it says when you put it in a sentence. So beginning in verse 5, Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5 and reading through verse 8, this is what these words mean when you put it together coherently in a sentence have the same attitude yourself that Christ Jesus had who existing as god in essence nature character and attribute chose not to exercise to the full extent all he is being god but possessed the essence character nature and attributes of a slave became a real human being and in looking like a real man, he willingly lowered his status by becoming submissive even to death itself. And that's, in essence, what the Apostle Paul is really saying. That Christ, who is really God, clothed himself in human flesh And became really human. And in doing so, set aside his lofty estate that was his in heaven. His rank, his position in heaven. Set that aside with certain attributes that were his. And lowered himself not by just becoming a human being, but becoming a slave, a servant of God as a human, and a servant of fellow human beings. Now these four phrases, humbled himself, form of a slave, likeness of men, appearance as a man, these four phrases describe the degrees, the degrees... In which the Lord of glory willingly, willingly became the least among men. Let me read it to you as the prophet Isaiah puts it. In Isaiah 53 verses 2 and 3. And I want to read it from the Good News Bible. I think it will make more sense to us. The prophet Isaiah writes in Isaiah chapter 53 verses 2 and 3. It was the will of the Lord... "...that his servant grow like a plant, taking root in dry ground. He had no dignity." Now we're talking about his humanity. We're talking about the humanity of Christ. "...he had no dignity or beauty to make us take notice of him. There was nothing attractive about him, nothing that would draw us to him. We despised him and rejected him. He endured suffering and pain." No one would even look at him. And we ignored him as if he were nothing. Kind of hard for us to grasp that. I believe it's impossible for us to understand that in his deity... Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Prince of Heaven, the Commander of the Host of Heaven, Creator, Word and Wisdom of God, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Father of Eternity, Prince of Peace, But in his humanity, he was homeless, unemployed, nobody, a person who was despised and rejected of men, liked by some, loved by a few, hated by many, condemned and crucified, As an enemy of the church by his own people. And this he became willingly for you and for me. This is the humility of Christ. Not the humiliation, but the humility, the humbleness of mind and of spirit that Christ had when He willingly accepted the Father's plan of salvation and came from the courts of heaven to dwell among us. Now the Bible clearly states it was necessary for the Son of God to become the Son of Man For several reasons. And I want to give you three. Why it is important for us to understand. That God. Has provided only one means of salvation. Why God has prepared only one way. To eternal life. And that is in his son. Jesus Christ. First. In Galatians chapter 4 verses 4 and 5. Scripture states, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Only humans are born Under God's law. Only humans are born under God's law. Animals are not born under God's law. Angels are not created under God's law. Only humans are born under God's law. And all humanity is guilty of of disobeying God's law. All humanity. Even the best among us are guilty of disobedience toward God. And that disobedience translates into judgment and condemnation. Not because God desires it, mind you, but because we choose it. We're all guilty of disobedience to God's law. Only a man understand, only a man born under the same law yet perfectly obedient to God's law could save us from the guilt of sin. And why is that so? Because it it pictures, it it describes, it relates to the sacrificial system that God had established among men to help them understand what He has said in other places, and we'll get to that in just a second, that life is in the blood, and only the shedding of blood can forgive sin. And there is no human being, and really there is no animal, That is pure enough in blood to become the perfect sacrifice that is able to take away sin permanently. And that's why the Old Testament people had to continue to offer sacrifice, a blood sacrifice, again and again and again, a sin sacrifice on the Day of Atonement or whenever uh, they came to the priest. Uh, you know, At least once a year they had to offer a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice for the guilt of sin. And they had to do it every year. Why? Because even the best of the best of the flocks and the herds that they brought was not perfect. And the blood was not pure. But even in this, the sacrificial system that God established pointed to one who would come, whose life was perfect, whose blood was pure, and he would offer his blood as a sacrifice for our sin permanently. And that's what the Apostle Paul was talking about here in Galatians. We're all guilty of disobeying God's law, but only a pure man, a completely righteous man, a completely holy man could save us from the guilt of sin. That man was Jesus. He gave his sinless life, a perfect sacrifice for our sin on the cross. He exchanged our sin for his perfect righteousness. Second Corinthians 5 verse 21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's the first reason why it is necessary, it is important for us to see that Jesus Christ is the only means whereby a person can be saved. There has never ever been a human being since the day of Adam's creation that was pure enough and perfect enough in life and in blood to become a sacrifice for sin. I don't care what religion you're from. Certainly not Muhammad, certainly not Buddha, Certainly not any one of a number of individuals who claim to be Messiah. They are not perfect in their obedience to the law of God. Second, Leviticus chapter 17 verse 11 states, The life of the flesh is in the blood. This is God speaking to Moses to speak to the children of Israel. The life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls for it is, it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. But it had to be the best. You couldn't offer God a sacrifice uh, a lamb or uh, a calf or uh, any one of a number of different animals required by God. You couldn't present God with a sacrifice that was blind or deaf or lame or diseased. It had to be the purest of the pure. But even the purest of the pure was not perfect. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22 According to the law almost all things are purified with blood and without the shedding of blood there is no athesis, forgiveness, freedom, pardon. Without the shedding of blood but it has to be pure. And that's why the Apostle says, according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. So God instituted a sacrificial system, an imperfect system, to accommodate this principle, knowing, knowing that the blood of animals, although temporarily accepted by God, was only a purpose was only a precursor to the perfect sacrifice that God Himself would provide in His Son, Jesus Christ. The old sacrifices had to be repeated every year, as I stated a moment ago, because they were insufficient. And they were insufficient because they were imperfect. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, It is not possible, it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. Jesus Christ sacrificed his human body his human life his human blood to cleanse and to cancel the guilt and punishment for the sins of all who would believe in him and receive him as Lord and Savior if Jesus Christ was not human then his sacrifice would not have been acceptable it wouldn't have been a sacrifice at all We would still be in our sin, condemned to be separated from God forever. Finally, the humanity of Jesus makes it possible. And I love this one. I love all three of them. But I love this one. I can relate to this one more than the first two. The humanity of Jesus makes it possible for him to relate to us in a way that angels or animals never can. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now I know some of you have animals that you love. Horses, cats, dogs... What? Puppies. My oldest grandson has rats. And you love those animals. You love to play with them. They're good companions. They make you feel happy at times by the antics that they perform. But that animal cannot relate to you on a human level. And you know that. They can respond to you by certain words or certain commands that they have become accustomed to, like Pavlov's dog responds to the ringing of a bell. It's feeding time when he hears the bell. But they cannot relate to you on the level that you are as a human. But the wonderful thing about the incarnation of Jesus Christ is that God can relate to you on a human level because Christ became human. And there is nothing that you will fear, there is nothing that you will experience, there is nothing that you will face that Jesus Christ cannot fully relate to because he faced it all he experienced it all this A.T. Robertson says is the singular difference that cannot be overlooked in the actual humanity of Jesus it is the singular difference that you and I cannot overlook in the actual humanity of Jesus. This is why He didn't appear like a human. He came to us as a human. He can relate to us. Because He was as we are, yet without sin. He didn't yield to sin. More importantly, there was no inherent sin principle in Jesus to be inflamed by temptation And no deference to sin that had to be conquered in him. Jesus experienced, listen, he experienced the weaknesses and the frailties common to man because he was human in nature, in character, and in body. He grew tired and weary and sleepy. And he needed to rest. He expressed anger and disappointment and frustration. He was hungry and thirsty and needed food and drink. He was loved by dear friends and expressed love and compassion to everyone, including Judas Iscariot, by the way. He knew mental distress He experienced emotional suffering and physical pain. Though he was God, he humbled himself before the Heavenly Father and before his earthly parents to submit to their will and to their authority, even though he was God. He submitted to the authority of the Father and to the authority of men. Satan used his greatest weapons, his most powerful methods against Jesus to get him to sin, to get him to compromise his divinity. But he failed. Jesus remained sinless in a sinful world. He was tempted. He was persecuted. He was poor. He was despised. He suffered physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual pain. And though he knew no sin in and of himself, he became sin for us and endured the sorrows of the suffering and the hideousness of the death on the cross. And in that moment, he was forsaken by His disciples, His friends, who said they would be loyal to Him no matter what. He was forsaken by those men, and He was abandoned by the Father. Only a human being could experience those things. And only a human being could fully understand such things through personal experience. It was not a mental exercise for Jesus. Oh, I can relate to that because, you know, I've seen the suffering of others and I can only imagine. No, Jesus knows because Jesus experienced for Himself. So Jesus Christ is, therefore, able to sympathize with us and save us. Only the God-man, He who was fully God and fully man, is our sole source of hope in this life and in eternity. No other individual rises to that level. So what is left for us is to believe in Him. As the one who knows us. Because he himself was like us. Trust in him. No matter what it is that you face. No matter what it is that you're going through. Understand that in principle, Jesus has gone through the same things in his own life. You can trust him. To give you wisdom and understanding. And guidance through the issues that you're facing. Receive him as your Lord and as your Savior. Not just as your Savior, but as your Lord and as your Savior. Submit to him as he submitted to the authority of the Father, as he submitted to his earthly parents, as he submitted to the elders of Israel. Submit to Jesus as Lord. And let Him guide you through life. Let Him show you how to be victorious over the various issues of life. Commit your life to Him and follow Him. Follow Him. Wherever it is that He leads, Whatever it is that he would have you do. Whatever it is he would have you become. Well, I'm old and and I've, I've already spent my life doing this, that, and the other. There's nothing left for me to do. Moses didn't even get started until he was 80. If you're alive, and I think some of you are, you're alive because there is something else that God wants you to do. Follow him. Follow Him. Let Him show you that your life is not spent. Let Him show you that there is still time for you to be at the next level of your experience with Christ. In service to Christ. In ministry to one another. Commit to Him. Follow Him. Throughout the remainder of your life and into the life of that is yet to come amen and amen stand with me if you will please david will come and lead us as we dismiss david i appreciate that truth that jesus relates to us and i know because he relates to me i know this to be true without Father, thank you for our time together in your word. Thank you for the fellowship of brothers and sisters in the Lord. Thank you for the fellowship of your Holy Spirit. Father, help us to not be afraid to approach your Son, Jesus, With every concern, every burden, every failure that we experience, even with every joy and every victory that we have, help us, Lord, not to be afraid to come before Jesus and express to Him our desire to exalt Him and to honor Him in those things in life that we experience. Knowing. Knowing that He understands. Because He's experienced those things as well. As we have come to this house to worship, now we depart into the fields that are white unto harvest. May we be open and receptive to the leading of your Holy Spirit as He brings people into our pathway that we may be able to minister the gospel of Jesus Christ to those souls. To your honor and to your glory, to the salvation of the lost, to the encouragement and ministry to the saved, I ask. In the holy and precious name of Jesus Christ and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you and have a great day in the Lord. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on him now and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to him. If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch. ORG.